electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner. We are live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with relief lifting bank stocks and the broad indexes as well. Even as suspense builds ahead of tomorrow's crucial Fed decision, you see regional banks as a group up nearly 5% a two-day bounce in that sector. And that brings us to our talk of the tape. Is the market's rebound this week showing underlying stability or vulnerability? to a nasty surprise that might come. Joining us now is Jason Hunter, J.P. Morgan's head of technical strategy. Uh, Jason, it's great to catch up with you on all this. It's been interesting market action. Um, You know, we had a scare. Uh, The the S&P 500 never quite broke down, stayed above the December lows. In fact, we're trading right now exactly where the index was the day before Silicon Valley Bank started to melt down. So, volatility index spike. Does that mean that we've absorbed a little mini panic and it's resilient or do you see risk uh, of the downside ahead? So on a very near term basis, we've pointed to this 3950, 4000 area. Um, And when the market first broke down through that, you could look at the last two months or so of price action looked a little bit like a top to move down through those you know, widely followed moving averages in that same area, a couple of CTA type trend following levels in that area, had the potential to trigger downside you know, risk to the, you know, to the downside there. Um, to move back above that now, what we've been saying is if you move above 4,000, you'll table that short-term bearish momentum. Mm-hmm. But bigger picture, the thing that got us negative going into December, up when the S&P was around 4,100, um, that's still there. We think it's very much a limited upside story with asymmetric risk to the downside and why this particular scenario didn't release us to the downside, Mm -hmm. um, there's still that risk as we move forward. So we're right there, right? I mean, the S&P is uh, five points from 4,000. I don't know how precise we want to be about that trigger level. Um, But the manner in which the market is held together may be worth noting as well. A lot of talk last week and coming into this week about the very large growth stocks, um, the, the strong balance sheet companies, the old mega caps that really did hold the index together. Um, Is that a sign of some kind of healthy rotation instinct, or do you feel like that's just a narrowing of the market that we have to be aware of? Yeah, so late cycle, that's a narrowing of the market. What you normally see is cyclicals will be the first ones to come under pressure. Money rotates into the stable earners, the secular growth. And then finally into the more true defensive plays. Um, and usually that would occur as the yield curve's heading toward inversion and when it first gets into inversion. We've been inverted for roughly a year now. Um, so at this point, that rotation into stable earners uh, you know, quality, um, we think it's a little late for that. Um, and in fact, in some of our modeling, there, if we think there's limited upside for the S&P, there's probably even more limited upside for things like the Nasdaq 100 at this point, given the flow we've seen, not just more recently, but even in early January, you saw a bit of a position squeeze that drove the Nasdaq higher as well. You know, you'll hear folks who are, I guess, uh, looking at things half full uh, and they'll say, look, semiconductors have outperformed. They look pretty good. Coming into this phase, you did have some cyclical sectors that really were distinguishing themselves. It seemed to be sending a relatively reassuring economic message. Whether we can believe it or not, it seemed to be what the tape is doing. Now, banks falling apart, 
probably never good in any yeah. of these scenarios. But I wonder how you, you just sort of read uh, the leadership profile. Yeah, so certainly coming into the year, it's a strategy team that was negative coming in, thinking 4,100 was a ceiling. When you hear stories about China reopening, not only semiconductors, but basic materials, industrials, all the deep cyclicals really getting an enormous bid into January, that's something that concerned me. Mm -hmm. And if that persisted and made the case for a PMI cycle bottom, we would have had a problem with our view. But as soon as you got into early February, even before that, the whole China-centric story started to fade. Mm -hmm. um, and more recently, with the panicky type trading that we've had in recent days, cyclicals really came under extreme pressure. Things like copper-gold ratio, European autos. I mean, you can go down the list with one exception, semiconductors, that not only held their bid, they actually caught an additional bid and almost started to act like secular growth. And we kind of wrote in a note that we published yesterday that semiconductors have a bit of identity crisis mm. here, where there is some rationalizing. These are no longer cyclical plays for various reasons and narratives. These are secular growth stories. And, you know, number one, that story is very stretched on the same modeling that makes the Nasdaq look somewhat overbought now and certainly limited upside. Semiconductors on that modeling using things like Fed expectations, economic surprise data, mm -hmm. semis are incredibly stretched now. Um, and we'd argue that this 3,200 area on the SOX is probably something of a ceiling for the semiconductor index. I wonder if that's really just a read on NVIDIA being so much bigger and more of a force in the index, in the semiconductor index, and it itself is surrounded by secular growth sentiment. I mean, it just seems like that might be that kind of a, a profile. It's the, the market care dominator, dominator in that sector. Um, now, to be clear, you're, you're thinking that we have to go back toward or to uh, the October lows in the S&P. Eventually, this is going to work down that way? That's correct, yeah. And, and basically, the idea is we get a retest of the lows. And when you go back historically and look at recession-driven bear markets, that's still something of a more muted bear market when you associate the ones with, with recessions, if we're just simply retesting 3,500. And what would really, you know, uh, bolster that view and what we've been watching most closely is across the market when we look at the fixed income market. If we see a continuation of the bear steepening, I'm sorry, the bull steeping that we've seen in recent days um, as the cyclicals came under pressure, um, if that is reinforced as equities start to sell off toward that 3,500, ironically, it's the bad that will make the good. It's a market that looks forward and sees the Fed will pivot as we get into the second half. And then we'll look for things like cyclicals to actually start to outperform the deep cyclicals that you normally look for, mm -hmm. small caps outperform. But for right now, the point is we still have to get through the down before we can get to the up. And mm -hmm. people should be really focused on risk management at this point, especially where markets are priced today. Got it. And, and just to be clear for folks, a, a bull steepener in the Treasury curve is uh, short-term yields go down more than longer-term yields, which exactly. is exactly what's been going on as yeah. people are positioned for potential Fed rate cuts in the months ahead. Let's bring in Nicole Webb of Wealth Enhancement Group uh, into the conversation. Nicole, um, you've been focused on, uh, I guess, defense or quality within your portfolios. Uh, so I would assume you're also not really too concerned about upside risk, perhaps no matter what happens tomorrow with the Fed. I mean, our, the clients of our firm are looking for us to be kind of prepared for various possible outcomes. So when we think about the Fed decision tomorrow, it seems to us that, you know, in either direction, the Fed is a bit vulnerable. So as we're looking at positioning through 2023, to us, the probability of the economy eroding to some degree is much greater than the probability of expansion. And so similar to the points just made, we expect this range to be tested back to the October lows, a bit to the high side that we've seen this year. Some of this growth versus value, who, who's coming out ahead, some of those duration trades, those themes continuing to be a bit omnipresent as we watch for more 
of this data to roll over in terms of the tightening we're seeing in the financial markets and, and that pushing through to bring us to the re-steepening of the yield curve and kind of the far side outlook of this year. What would you say to those who, and this has been uh, kind of thrown out there multiple times in the last week or two, which is that all this upheaval in the banking sector, you've had the failure of a few banks, you've had some extraordinary uh, measures by regulators uh, and the central bank, maybe has just sort of pulled forward the moment when the Fed is done uh, hiking rates. Who knows if it leads to cuts down the road, Uh, but it's relatively low cost uh, in terms of the the damage done in order to to get to that point. When we were thinking a few weeks ago, Fed's got months and months and it's going to get up to 6% on the short rate. Is there any merit to that type of thinking? I mean, it it certainly appears that the market is working in the assumption that the Fed is going to become more dovish. I think many of us are more waiting to hear what we hear than what action the Fed takes tomorrow. To your points exactly, because there's some question in, is the resilience of the market thus far for the wrong reasons? Meaning, if we've suddenly pivoted to this lower expected terminal rate, without the meaningful progress, but instead issues specific to the bank sector um, in terms of how quickly rates moved and some of those the underlying fundamental pressures there, that's not the same as seeing kind of meaningful reduction to services inflation, to wage growth, to the structural changes in the labor market. So those issues are still there, but yet we have to factor in you know, the strength and resilience of the the financial markets as a whole. And so, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how the Fed plays through that, especially after watching how the ECB took action last week. Uh, Jason, you mentioned that um, in bear markets associated with a recession, you know, you see you you expect this particular type of uh, of pattern, right? A retest down toward those lows. And maybe we're closer uh, to actually being in the recession, I suppose. Um, what cycle does it seem to be uh, echoing if there is one or, or various types uh, of instances? I'd say like if it, it- if I had to pick one, um, given how much damage has been done already before we've even gotten close to recession data, it would probably, if I think about how the market's going to bottom and when the data maybe materializes, the early 1990s, where if you waited for the actual recession data to show up, the equity market was already rallying for a month or two months at that point. Mm-hmm. So our thinking is that the equity market puts it slow and as we get toward the end of the first half. Um, and our own economists don't think the recession data comes until later. Um, but at that point, if the market now is efficiently pricing the Fed to start pivoting as we start to see that data sometime in the second half, the equity market starts to read ahead and rally out of that. So I'd have to, I'd have to pick that one uh, if I did yeah. one. No, it's a, it's a good uh, sort of mental model of how things uh, have tended to go in sequence. And, Nicole, um, just finally, if you could be more specific about what uh, appeals to you right now in terms of your tilts in your portfolios and, and sectors and things like that that make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Ever, really starting last year, we started to hyper-focus on quality. And to us, that specifically was looking at companies with strong balance sheets and consistency of cash flow. And so when you tilt that over into a more just slightly defensive posturing, we're looking at healthcare names, some of those that haven't performed in the same way as others. So a name that comes to mind is Johnson & Johnson. Um, we still like Merck, although we've seen more of a run-up in that name versus 
you know, over the last six months, how J&J has performed. Um, and then Thermo Fisher, just with some of that consistency of cash throw, flow through various outcomes. Um, we still are holders of longer duration quality bonds, individuals, um, as we believe that could play out in one of the scenarios in which we do go into a mild recession. And then continuing to barbell growth and value um, as they continue to kind of have these meaningful waves of under and out performance relative to where the market believes the Fed is headed. Um, those are our top three positioning plays right now. Yeah, those rotation swings have been uh, pretty rapid uh, recently in the past several months. Nicole, Jason, thanks so much. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. All right, let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We're asking, what is the Fed going to do tomorrow? Pause, hike 25 basis points, or do something else? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter to vote. We'll share the results later in the hour. And let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head toward the close. Christina Partsinevelos has that for us. Hi, Christina. Hi. Well, let's start with shares of Coinbase surging right now. There's a few catalysts. The crypto exchange will integrate with the Brazilian government's payment system to start allowing crypto purchases with Brazilian currency. The government platform already has about 140 million users, but this is about adding further legitimacy to cryptocurrency. Speaking of which, crypto... Bitcoin up, what, 21% just this month alone? So that means there's more support for crypto, driving one analyst at Tiger Securities to give Coinbase a huge price target upgrade to buy, of course, from 65 bucks to $200 a share. Coinbase is only at $84.46 at the moment. But uh, you can see shares are up over 12%. Switching gears, Vernado Realty Trust is firmly in positive territory. Analysts at Piper Sandler upgraded the stock to neutral from underweight. They note that the market's view of the office sector is bleak, but they say even though office life is changing, the office, like here, isn't going away entirely, and Bornado will keep doing his business. <laughs> All right. Reassuring in its way. Uh, Christina, thank you very much. Uh, we are just getting started here. Up next, Treasury Secretary Yellen speaking in D.C. on the state of the banks. We are live in Washington. Plus, how you can best trade the financials, where one investment strategist thinks you should put your money to work despite all this uncertainty. That is all after the break. The index is uh, pretty much at the highs of the day. S&P 500 just below the 4,000 level. Closing bell, we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking today at the American Bankers Association in Washington. Kayla Tausche joins us now with what she has to say. Hey, Kayla. Hey, Mike. Secretary Yellen today said the banking crisis is stabilizing with deposit outflow slowing down. And she said the U.S. banking system remains sound, drawing a contrast, a stark contrast, to the 2008 financial crisis, which touched nearly every bank. And while Yellen chalked up that confidence to the government's swift and decisive action to keep any systemic risk in check, she said regulators are vigilant and may still need to do more. It's our intention to remain vigilant in the days and weeks to come. And as I said in my remarks, that means um, potentially intervening um, if a smaller bank um, experiences the kinds of difficulties we have seen that pose the risk of contagion. Across town in Washington, top bank executives are gathering with the Financial Services Forum, a different trade association, but that's a meeting usually attended by the senior most government financial officials. That meeting is usually to discuss policy issues, and it's been previously scheduled, but it does come as executives uh, are focused on keeping First Republic Bank afloat and are currently discussing on con contingency plans for that $30 billion deposit investment, Mike, and certainly that sale process is underway, but banks want to figure out exactly you know, what their exposure and their risk is to that bank and what they can do to keep it solvent. Oh, for sure, Kayla. And, you know, Secretary Yellen's remarks um, specifically mentioning if a smaller bank were to have trouble, uh, clearly there's a little bit of a hesitancy to make these broad anything that could be read, read as a broad guarantee, perhaps because, you know, they're not able at Treasury to make such a guarantee. Right. And she leaned heavily on the systemic risk exception, the fact that the government can intervene if a bank in this situation is uh, found to have systemic risk to the global financial system. That is clearly the determination that they made in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, in the case of Signature Bank, and then uh, in, in a slightly different fashion regarding First Republic Bank. But she stopped just, just short of suggesting that, you know, she would support this temporary, uh, you know, lifting of the deposit insurance cap, which is something that's also under consideration here in Washington. It certainly is. Kayla, thank you very much. Sure. Well, regional bank shares surging on those comments from Treasury Secretary Yellen. My next guest says the bank industry is well capitalized and calls the broad sell-off an opportunity for long-term investors. Let's bring in Fred Cummings of Elizabeth Capital Management to talk more about that. Fred, it's great to have you. Um, so clearly, whenever you have banking stress, when you have institutions that fail and you have a fast-moving deposit flight, People naturally are going to wonder just exactly how pervasive these issues are. How can you offer some assurance that, you know, this is not going to be a game of waking up every day and finding some other bank or several banks in a similar position? Well, uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, investors and consumers need to understand that this is really a crisis of uh, confidence. When you look at the uh, fundamentals of the banking business, uh, banks have near record levels of capital. They have very strong um, liquidity, and they're uh, entering uh, 2023 at record levels of uh, profitability when you look at return on uh, average uh, assets. And, and more importantly, we've been in touch with a number of our portfolio companies, as well as uh, listening to um, uh, conference calls with uh, managements across the country. And the message is the same. Their customers are not uh, panicking. We are not uh, hearing that the banks are experiencing outsized uh, deposit uh, outflows, and that gives us a reason to be uh, optimistic. 
And I think uh, once we get to earnings season, uh, that same message will be uh, communicated uh, 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 throughout. And, and, and that should help to restore confidence in the uh, banking uh, sector. How do you treat, Fred, the, these estimates that now are making the, their way around uh, this new attention on uh, sort of paper losses on the books of banks from longer duration, uh, fixed income securities and loans and things like that, and, and, and stress testing each bank, in a sense, on our own for whether they can get through this if forced to sell? Because that seems to have been the game uh, when, when people were panicking about these stocks. Indeed, and a number of uh, people have talked about it, and I wanted really to address the misperceptions out there with regards to banks' inability to sell their available for sale security portfolio and remain well capitalized. Uh, we looked at the uh, 127 banks that comprise the S&P Regional Bank Index. What we found was that if all of those banks sold their entire available for sale uh, portfolio, only nine would um, drop below the well-capitalized uh, threshold of 7% uh, common equity or tier one ratio. And so that's a relatively uh, a low number. And that really uh, speaks to the, uh, uh, the the strength of the capital basis of these uh, institutions. And more importantly, uh, the banks are not going to have to uh, liquidate these securities, uh, particularly uh, now that the, the Fed has um, structured I, I, that term, uh, a, a lending uh, a facility. Uh, but but, but I, that was a misperception on the part of a number of uh, investors. And, and so we uh, looked at the uh, numbers, and that's the conclusion that we drew that banks could easily uh, sell their available for sale a portfolio and, and remain uh, well capitalized. Well, I mean, we've had this little two-day bounce in the sector, but the, the selling that led into it was just indiscriminate. So obviously, if you think that this is a more localized problem uh, and most banks are healthy, which types of, of banks, I know you have a long, short strategy, uh, are now attractive uh, based on the, the punishment they've taken? Yeah, well, we, we think there are a broad range of banks that are attractive. One of our favorites happens to be a bank in Texas, Texas Capital a bank. Uh, uh, this is a $28 billion bank. They brought in new management in uh, 2021, and he's uh, transforming their culture from a wholesale bank to a relationship bank. And, and we think that stock's going to do very well. Uh, we also like Banner Corporation in, in Washington State. Uh, this is a company that's focused on internal profitability improvement. They have a great uh, deposit franchise, and they have very low uh, credit risk. Uh, the same can be said for East West Bank Court, which happens to be one of the most profitable banks in the country, posting a 2% return on average assets. Uh, uh, they, too, have a great deposit franchise, and it's a, it's a very well-managed uh, institution. And then I'd also um, um, add that um, we like a small bank here in Ohio, a People's a Bank Corporation. Uh, this is one of the few banks that's been able to do uh, accretive acquisitions over the last uh, uh, nine months, and they have great earnings visibility as we look out to 2023. Uh, but fundamentally, the, the types of banks that we are attracted to have strong capital bases, have a very uh, attractive uh, deposit uh, franchises, and, and we mm -hmm. think they have very low uh, credit risk. And, and that's going to be the next focus area for uh, many investors, uh, given the fact that the economy is expected to slow in, uh, in sure. coming. 
Absolutely. Uh, some names we don't often talk to. I really appreciate uh, you, you bringing to our attention, Fred. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for the opportunity, Mike. All right. Anytime. Up next, we're drilling down on the energy trade. Our next guest forecasting some serious upside for the sector. He'll make his case. Closing bell. I'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Seeing some big moves in solar stocks as we head toward the close. Pippa Stevens joins us now with a look at those. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Mike. Well, solar stocks are pacing for their best day of the year, and we are seeing broad-based strength, but there are a couple of notable movers, including Canadian Solar. The company reported stronger-than-expected fourth-quarter results and said it expects full-year solar module shipments to be up 55% relative to 2022 at the midpoint of its range. Sonova is also jumping. Now, this move follows heavy losses last week, which several people told me were thanks to investors misunderstanding a filing from the company. Sonova announced that it's in talks with the DOE loan programs office to guarantee the majority of the company's loans to lower income customers. But importantly, this program hasn't yet been finalized and it also had nothing to do with the banking meltdown. CEO John Berger telling me, Mike, that it was in the works for more than a year. Back to you. Wow, maybe a sign of uh, how skittish uh, some investors are, uh, Pippa. Thank you very much. Energy stocks gaining today as oil prices rebound from 15-month lows. And our next guest says there's more upside in store. Let's bring in Robert Thummel, Senior Portfolio Manager of Tortoise Ecofin. And, uh, Rob, um, obviously been a tough run. Natural gas had, you know, kind of a crash. Uh, oil has not really performed as many thought it, uh, it would with uh, China reopening and, and the global economy reawakening. So what's your diagnosis of the issue initially in terms of why there has been this weakness? Yeah, no, thanks, Mike, for having me on. So I think really, I mean, when you look at it, you know, there's been a lot of uncertainty in the market. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about are we in a recession? And now with this banking crisis, you know, is, is that the triggering event that's going to actually cause this recession? And so I think when, if you have a recession, uh, you know, the really, really commodity prices tend to trade off. And so that's really what we've seen uh, in, in natural gas and oil over the past se- several weeks. And so now the question is, is how deep and how severe is it going to be? And so that, that's, that's really put energy stocks in a position where uh, there's some really good long-term and short-term opportunities for investors. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess, um, are we going to be free of those looming recession fears for a while? I mean, even if we don't get one statistically, it would seem like that's going to be the psychology for a while uh, around uh, just all investments. Yeah. Well, the reason why we like the energy sector tortoise is, is, is simple, uh, and, and, it's, and it's this, Mike. The way to dispel uh, or combat any uncertainty, even if it's how severe the recession is going to be, at least for companies, is generate a lot of free cash flow and reduce debt. And the energy sector Mm -hmm. across the board has really done that over the last several years and will continue into the future. It's a pretty simple formula. If you generate a lot of cash, return it back to shareholders and reduce your debt, that, in our mind, is a pretty compelling investment uh, opportunity and one that investors can really get behind. Um, even in an uncertain environment, whether it's recession or, or banking crisis or, or, or any other uh, uncertainty that's out there. 
you focused a fair bit on energy infrastructure type investments, right? Pipelines and things like that. Has there been um, a surge in investment in those areas to the to the point where uh, you know it's going to be uh, some overcapacity down the road, or are we we not there yet? Yeah, no, that's a very good observation. So there was a lot of investment during the the, the shale boom to build out adequate infrastructure uh, in order to be able to transport significant amounts of increased volume to U.S. oil and natural gas, both domestically as well as globally through exports. But that infrastructure has largely been built out. And you're right, there now is excess capacity. So that's why we really like energy infrastructure, because you can still have oil and gas volumes in the U.S. grow, which they will. But you don't have to, these companies, these energy infrastructure companies don't have to spend a lot of excess capital. Um, uh, and, and CapEx. So uh, effectively, all of the incremental cash flow goes back to the investors in the form of uh, higher dividends or it may potentially stock buybacks as well, which, uh, you know, when you look at the energy infrastructure sector, you're getting six, seven, eight, in some cases, even double digit uh, dividend yields, which in, in this environment is pretty attractive. Yeah, I noted, um, I mean, what, like energy transfer would be in a, uh, you know, a name in that area that uh, that you might own 10% stated dividend yield right now. You don't think that the relative yields uh, look a little bit less attractive given the fact you can get, I don't know, 5% in, uh, in some T-bills? Yeah, well, uh, obviously there's incremental risk in energy transfer versus T-bills, as you highlight. But, but when yeah. you look at what energy transfer is doing, and then that, I, I, we still think that that spread and that, that risk spread or that risk premium you're paying to buy an energy transfer is still too wide. If you look at the free mm-hmm. cash flow yield for, for energy transfer, it's it's more than that 10%. So in other words, when, what I mean by that is that not only provides energy transfer enough money to pay that 10% dividend yield, but also buy back some stock as well. And so uh, we look at, you can look at it as, as a spread to T-bills, but you can also look at the free cash flow yield as a spread to the broader market. And the S&P 500 mm-hmm. dividend yield is probably 5 or 6%. The dividend, the free cash—sorry, the free cash flow yields five or six percent. Mm-hmm. The free cash flow yield for energy infrastructure is double digits. So that spread is just too wide from our perspective. Gotcha, and uh, and could of course that payout grow over time. Uh, Rob, uh, good to catch up with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. All right, up next, Nvidia's big AI moment is here. The company holding its annual developer conference. We're breaking down what its latest push might mean for its already roaring stock. Is there more room to run? We'll discuss when Closing Bell comes right back. 22 minutes until the Closing Bell. Here's where we stand. Near the highs of the day, the S&P 500 just under the 4,000 mark, up 1.2%. That's about a 10-day high. Uh, The Dow up uh, about 267. The Russell 2000 outperforming up 2%, and the Nasdaq keeping pace uh, just about up 1.5%. Shares of NVIDIA have been on a wild ride, up more than 70% year-to-date. So how much room does that stock really have to run from here? Christina Parsonevel is here with more on the stock on the back of its annual conference, Christina. Well, it's, it's hard to find anyone on Wall Street who is not bullish on NVIDIA, given its contribution to generative AI. And at today's conference, the CEO, Jensen Wong, touted the importance of capitalizing on that trend. Listen in. We are at the iPhone moment of AI. Startups are racing to build disruptive products and business models, while incumbents are looking to respond. Generative AI has triggered a sense of urgency in enterprises worldwide. 
Today's big announcement was around a new DGX supercomputer that will allow companies to build and train their own AI models with new partnerships, with, announced with Oracle, Microsoft, Adobe. And the goal is to have all of these partners and users be able to access these supercomputers that you're seeing on your screen just from a regular web browser. There are other announcements, a new GPU, graphics processing unit, and new lithography capabilities, which is really just complicated lighting processes to design chips. And that will make an easy even more powerful two nanometer semiconductor, resulting in more collaborations with TSMC, ASML, and Synopsys. But investors are watching NVIDIA. Why should we care? Well, it further entrenches NVIDIA into the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. The stock, like you mentioned, moving higher uh, year-to-date over, what, 80%? Up today, ever so slightly, 1.7% versus the SOX, which is only up, look at that, 24% year-to-date. And NVIDIA, too, is on track for its best quarter since 2003. Investors like it. They sure do, um, uh, Christina. And, you know, it's a $650 billion market cap right now. It dwarfs almost everything else in the semiconductor industry, right? It's like 50% bigger than Taiwan Semi in market cap terms, just multiples of AMD at this point. And, you know, it's almost as if the market only really bestows that kind of market value on companies it thinks are more than hardware. You know, they have to have some kind of recurring uh, and defensible ecosystem around them. And so clearly that seems to be another piece of the NVIDIA message to investors. We saw that with a lot of the announcements made today. This is about becoming a cloud service company. So it's not just a chip name. It's going to transition and maybe even, you know, five to 10 years from now, more than 50 percent of NVIDIA's revenue is actually going to come from software, reoccurring uh, subscription models and all that. So it's no longer just that, hey, semiconductor designer or GPU Mm -hmm. provider. Yeah, trying to escape from that idea of, uh, you know, the quick cycles in, uh, in hardware. But uh, oh, yeah, 60 times true. forward earnings, we'll see uh, if, they can, uh, if they can justify that. Uh, Christina, thanks so much. Thank you. A quick programming note. Don't miss the CEO of NVIDIA. That is tonight on Mad Money. Last chance now to weigh in on our Twitter question. We asked, what is the Fed going to do tomorrow? Pause. Hike by 25 basis points or do something else. Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. We'll bring you the results after this break. Let's get the results of our Twitter question. We asked, what is the Fed going to do tomorrow? The majority of you saying hike by 25 basis points, about a 75% probability. That matches the bond market's uh, probabilities of what's going to happen in a day. Up next, we're counting down to Nike's numbers, the retailer reporting in overtime. We'll break down what you can expect when those numbers hit the tape. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Eric Knutson of Newberger Berman is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Phil LeBeau on Tesla's big move and Omar Saad from Evercore on what he's watching in Nike's earning. earnings are due uh, right after the bell. Uh, Eric, uh, good to have you here today. We have the market actually uh, making new highs for the day, going back about a week and a half in the S&P 500. Seems like there's some comfort building or at least a lack of fear as to what the Fed might do tomorrow. What's your best guess on their decision and and what are the immediate implications, do you think, of, uh, of what they do? 
Yeah, the Fed's grappling with whether they're going to be Arthur Burns and be too dovish as inflation is high, or whether they're going to pull the full Jean-Claude Trichet and, and hike into a banking crisis. The ECB's already done the, the Trichet and hiked into the banking crisis, and we think the Fed will take that next step, a 25 basis point increase, um, but probably wrap that in some pretty dovish language, indicate they're close to the end, if not at the end. And in a way, it almost doesn't matter. It's priced in, and at this moment, What's most important is the broad liquidity being provided, you know, through the, the Fed's balance sheet and some of the programs they put in, in place and the liquidity they provided last week on the one hand. But also, on the other hand, what we do expect to see in, uh, lead to considerable tightening uh, as banks change their posture in this more challenging environment. And that's the part that we think is going to have the biggest negative impact on the economy. And negative impact on the economy to the point where it causes a significant downturn or simply moderates the growth? Because, again, we were just talking a month ago about it looked like things were overheating, too hot for the Fed's taste. Fed was going to have to go to 6% on the short end. The conversation's entirely changed. And what's your confidence level that we will get a recession or something like it? So certainly recession risk has increased. We came into this year saying it was better than 50-50 odds of recession, and we'd say that's still the case within the next 12 months. Um, the, the, the markets are partying like it's 2009, like we're going back to the kind of post-GFC playbook of easy money, low uh, negative real interest rates, um, low inflation. And we think that, that the next five to 10 years is going to look quite different than the five to 10 years after 2009. We're likely to get stickier inflation, and the market isn't fully accounting for that yet, that the Fed is projecting that they're going to, you know, positive 2% real yields, um, they may not be able to do that much given the news we've had, but they're going to stick with the notion that they're going to go back to positive real yields. We're not going into a negative real yield environment, and that is going to be challenging for the economy. So we do think the economy is going to slow. Recession risks are high, and we don't think that's priced into equity markets yet, which lead us to be underweight equities um, in our multi-asset portfolios. And so in favor of fixed income here, even, you know, with all the, the yield volatility we've seen? Sure. Short duration fixed income and cash, frankly. You know, cash is yielding 5%. That's comparable to the earnings yield on the S&P 500. That's a very, very strong competitor from an asset allocation standpoint. So we're overweight cash, we're underweight equities, and we're overweight fixed income. What we like in fixed income is high quality, shorter duration credit. We added duration as yields rose to around 4% on the Treasury, 10-year Treasury. Um, frankly, we're, we're looking at trimming um, duration at this juncture. Our fixed income team's been trimming duration you know, in this, in this environment. But there is really interesting opportunity in shorter duration credit, in mortgage-backed securities and structured product, where you can pick up pretty attractive yields with a lot of mitigated risks uh, in this environment. Yeah, certainly uh, providing a buffer, if nothing else. Um, Eric, great to catch up with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, Phil, uh, this move in Tesla, it's been uh, kind of eye-catching today. What seems to be behind it? Well, if you're looking for a catalyst, and it's not a huge one, and ordinarily it would not be a catalyst that would have this kind of an impact. But take a look what Moody's did today regarding the debt rating for Tesla, raised it out of junk status, raised it to BAA3. That is following the move that we saw from Standard & Poor's last fall. So now you've got investment grade credit rating for Tesla. Again, this ordinarily wouldn't have a huge impact. They cite strong liquidity, deliveries growing, prudent financial policy. 
put that together with the anticipation that we might, might see a pause or perhaps the beginning of the Fed lowering rates down the road. And that gave all of the EV stocks a nice pop today. Tesla, by far, the most uh, action today, up, what, 8% yeah. on the day. But there you see the rest, Lucid, Fisker, Lordstown, and Canoe. Guys, back to you. Yeah, and uh, Elon Musk doing his share to try to uh, whip up uh, some enthusiasm for a potential rate yes. uh, cut, excuse me, down the road, calling for half a point. But, um, you know, Rivian was also an interesting one here. We got some comments out of Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley. The stock now trading right around its cash on the books. Right. Right. And, and that's an interesting point because we're looking at a situation where people are saying, what does the future hold for Rivian? Everybody that you talk with on Wall Street will tell you the same thing. They like the management team. They like the, the product and they like what they are hoping to do in the future. The question is, how do you get from here to there? And in between, there's a lot of hurdles that need to be overcome. And that's why I think a lot of people are saying, where do you go with Rivian? Do you see this as the base, Mike, or do you look at this and say it's going to be choppy waters at best over the next several quarters? Yeah, we remember how uh, difficult and uncertain it was when Tesla was uh, traveling that road subscale yes. and trying to ramp up. So uh, they're, they're starting from a little bit behind. Uh, Phil, uh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Omar, uh, Omar Saad at Evercore, uh, what are we looking for in Nike's numbers today? Uh, you know, it's it had a little bit of a run in the stock as people have flocked back to the quality names in consumer. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly our view in soft lines right now. We think in this judicious consumer environment where consumers aren't spending uh, willy-nilly on everything and every, anything, uh, certain franchises uh, are really being able to separate themselves from the pack. Nike, in our mind, is one of those franchises Plus, you know, we're still amidst a sneaker boom, uh, in our opinion, and as consumers replenish and fill their closets with more and more sneakers. Tonight, I think that there's two key questions as we look at the earnings. China, the China reopening. Uh, Nike's obviously been beneficiary of huge growth in China over time, and then uh, it's been a drag during COVID, given all the shutdowns and some of the other factors happening there. Uh, it's going to be one of the first uh, data points after the Chinese New Year, this long after the Chinese New Year, so it should be a very interesting update. And the other question, I think, is the, uh, the margin unlock. Is Nike's underlying kind of DTC-driven margin unlock going to show through a lot more now that some of the margin headwinds are easing, whether it's the elevated costs and freight, as well as some of the markdowns they had to work through on uh, uh, apparel inventories that built up in the U.S.? Yes, obviously inventories have also been uh, a bit of, uh, in, you know, in focus. You mentioned that Nike had some big investors in to, I guess, uh, give a little more detail about their strategy and things like that. What's your read on that? This is going back, I guess, a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on. You know, uh, the, the, the company, as many companies were, you know, were a lot more quiet during COVID, a lot less interaction in, within the company and certainly with external players and investors. So I think they took the opportunity to take some of their key shareholders, bring them in, reintroduce them to new management teams they hadn't met before, and I think show them some product as well. From what we heard, usually a good sign uh, when Nike's bringing some of its key, key shareholders in. I doubt that's uh, 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 a decision they would make ahead of a series of, of challenging financial times ahead. I think really, you know, Nike's put a lot of hard work in on the inventory, as well as building the underlying digital ecosystems and product pipeline and local consumer connections in markets from uh, China to North America and everywhere in between. I think that's uh, you know what we're going to see in the numbers play out tonight and in the coming quarters as well. 
You mentioned that uh, you say we're still in a sneaker boom. Um, and what has that meant for Nike in terms of market share? Obviously, everyone uh, is interested in, in, in all the, the kind of newer fashionable models. But uh, it seems have they reaped the benefits, uh, so to speak, from Adidas's struggles already? Or is that still, uh, you know, in the future as well? Yeah, I mean, this is a great kind of double-edged question. On the one hand, Adidas and, and some other companies had struggles, and there's probably some excess inventory in certain markets, including China. Uh, but on the other hand, consumers are wearing sneakers more, which means they're wearing through them more. A lot of sneakers are white, which they, makes them wear through more quickly. And people are wearing them more occasions, which means they want to have more pairs in their closets. Uh, so we're talking about billions and billions of sneakers and feet out there that need to be uh, you know, kind of uh, clothes with sneakers, if you will. So, you know, Nike to me is the biggest, you know, potential beneficiary. Obviously, in this kind of rising tide, there's a lot of boats being lifted. You hear companies like On today, the stock is up huge on, on, on great numbers and a very strong demand outlook. Uh, brands like Hoka. So, you know, Foot Locker yesterday, new CEO Mary Dillon stepping in. I think that's another company that's positioned to benefit from the sneaker boom. But uh, Nike is the biggest player, has the largest supply chain, the biggest pipeline of innovation, the strongest marketing machine, on and on and on. They're probably the one that's going to reap the most rewards. And, and by the way, an entirely kind of built up digital direct to consumer ecosystem now uh, uh, to sell consumer, consumer, consumer sneakers directly. So a lot of factors gotcha. they put Nike at the center of the sneaker boom uh, beneficiaries. And quickly, not a cheap stock, uh, kind of never is really, but what's your upside target and what does that imply for the multiple? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is a company, it's really about the margin unlock. We know there's kind of you know very strong long-term demand for athletic active, active apparel. These are replenishment products in an oligopoly style market with the number one player. Uh, you know, historically, the margin has been capped at that 12, 13 percent range. And now, you know, there's this, uh, you know, theoretically, this big DTC margin unlock coming. If you think about Nike as a high teens margin company, you know, 50 percent larger, you're talking about eight dollars of earnings. And if it can kind of hold, you know, the kind of 30s multiple, you know, which as a digital consumer hyper growth, you know, mega cap global stock, you know, 30s multiples. You see that a lot in other part, Estee Lauder, for example. Uh, uh, some of the fast-growing CPG companies. I think sure. Nike, as well as some of the fast-growing tech companies, I think Nike it really fits in that group of companies. All right. See if it can uh, can show it's on that path after the close. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate that, Omar. Uh, let's take a look at uh, where we are. The S&P 500 looks like it's going to go out right around 4,000. That's about a two-week high. Uh, you've seen the equal-weighted S&P also up nicely. Tech participating today as well at about a 5% rebound in the regional bank stocks ahead of the Fed day tomorrow. That's going to do it for closing bell. Let's send it over to Overtime with Morgan Brennan and John Ford. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.